ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name's Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. For those in Timber Creek who have been isolated by flooding for more than two weeks and have received no assistance from the Territory Government, well, your local member, Labor's Duran Young, will be joining us in a moment. So if you have a question that you would like to put to him, send it through on our text line this afternoon, that number 0487 1057. It is the 1st of February, which means it's the official start of the commercial barramundi season. How is the season shaping up and where can boats go in 2024? We'll be talking about this very soon. Big show today. We're broadcasting across the Territory on the ABC, streaming online. And g'day there if you have downloaded our podcast. First up today, let's talk about the live export trade. Because at the moment, in the Northern Territory, this trade is in limbo. There's been no cattle exported from Darwin Port so far this year. Not one. Zero cattle, zero live export shipments. And according to ABS data, the last time that the Darwin Port had no live exports for an entire month was 34 years ago, March 1990. That's how far back in the history books you need to go to have a situation like what we are now seeing. As we go to air this afternoon, there's two live export ships anchored off the Territory Coast. The Brahmin Express and the Nine Eagle, they're out there now, anchored, and they're waiting. What are they waiting for? Well, to explain to you what is going on, I spoke earlier to exporter Patrick Underwood, who this week is in Jakarta. I'm in Jakarta. I've been here the last couple of days meeting with um, importers the embassy and yeah, just trying to understand sort of where these permits are because there's um there's a, a definite need for them certainly from from exporters um certainly from shipping companies but also importantly from from importers there's there's actually um um good demand over here at the moment and cattle are selling and the longer these permit the permit issue goes the sort of bigger the the gap in in supply which you know will affect them down the track so we're now into the month of February and Indonesia is yet to issue import permits for the year 2024. Is that right? That's correct. So we, there's often some sort of a delay. Like we, we, as, as, as exporters, we sort of don't book ships in the first couple of weeks of January. It's a, to be frank, it's an opportunity to sort of, to, to sort of catch up and December's a, a busy month. Um, but, uh, this is certainly the longest I can remember. I can't remember going an entire month, um, and now we're sort of into February. And um, you know, to, to be honest, we're we're still unsure. Like I've I've, I've spoken to a number of people over here. Um, you know, there, there was a, a strong view that around the twentieth they were going to be coming out in the in the following five days, but we're sort of past that period now, and actually starting to head towards the Indonesian presidential election, which is on the fourteenth of February. So. There's a, there's a little bit of a concern that if we sort of miss this next couple of days that we're sort of looking at that mid-February and, and even mid-February plus plus a week, I guess, because, you know, you would consider that the days leading up to and the week after the election, there'll be a, 
um, a lot of things happening in Indonesia and possibly no permits coming out. So it's it's um, it is a, a, a great concern. Yeah, I think of here in Australia, you sort of just before a federal election and afterwards, you know, bureaucracy sort of really does shut down a fair bit. Indonesia would be the same. It's a little bit different here. They they they, they tend to run the the same. Um, like within the different departments, they they continue for six months after election, then have a, a changeover. But but nonetheless, these permits are what they do require is a signature from the trade minister. It used to be with the Department of Agriculture, but now it's the Department of Trade. Um, so you know we're relying on a on a on a minister's signature to get import permits. So this waiting period, how much is it hurting Australia's northern live cattle trade? Look, it's, it's 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 definitely hurting some individual players. So so any any exporter that that um, took on a, a commitment with a ship um, and a customer and and, and a yard, um, it, it's obviously hurting, and um, that's of concern. It, we're certainly lucky that it's corresponded with a a very wet month. So I think this, particularly the second half of January, has taken you know a lot of Australia by surprise. The, the amount of rain and how widespread it is. So we are in a period where it's where it's very wet, and, and, and you know, to be to be frank, if we're trying to do a ship last week or next week, we'd we'd struggle with supply. So that part we're lucky. If I think if we had, you know, four to six to, to seven weeks without permits in any other time of the year, it would affect the production side of things, the producers. Whereas this is more about the actual supply chain. But it's important to note that it's in, impacting. Um, importers, because you know, one thing about importers is they sell cattle every day of the year, and if they have a, a gap of, of you know, a, a, again, if it's four, six, seven weeks without any cattle from Australia, um, then, then then it's going to impact them down the track. And they've got Ramadan fast approaching. That's right. So their the, the peak supply uh, so periods or sales periods will be um, the week leading into Ramadan, and certainly. Uh, the week after, where they, you know, they sell significant volumes of Australian cattle. So most of the importers up here are holding sales back, selling to select uh, customers, and just restricting to a sort of per day sales side of things. So um, and, and holding them back for that peak demand period. So I guess if you if you if you try and run it through, the fact that that, that Robert Arnold will finish um, sort of late late March, it will, it will at least correspond to the. The, the dry season, um, we, we assume that the you know rain's going to finish March or around Easter. So the good news is Australia will have you know significant volumes of cattle um, available then to, to to but 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 you know they do like to feed cattle for eighty to hundred days, and you can't do that if you've had to you know sell, sell you sell you you know most of your stock and then and then reimport. I've uh, got here on the. Um website for tracking ships the the brahman express looks like it's just anchored off darwin and waiting does that sound about right yeah i understand there's a couple off darwin there's um and there's there's i know there's a ship off Fremantle um that's destined for indonesia so i think i think the rest of us where, where possible we're talking to shipping companies to to um you know to sort of hold ships and and not bring cattle in yards there are some cattle in in quarantine um, but but I think you know the, the, where possible now the the export industry will will wait for permits and then and then um, you know bring cattle in the yards because you know at the end of the day they're better off in paddocks um, than, than in export yards certainly from a cost perspective but you know just from an animal perspective so 
uh, it's up to us to try and negotiate with our customers and with shipping companies to uh, to hold back. And but you know, there's only a limited number of, of ships, and the longer this goes, the I guess the more the demand builds up, and the more the requirement will be for some significant numbers of cattle to be exported quickly. And that, and that, uh, you know, that, that's limited. You know, how many cattle can move at once? So, yeah, look, it, it's very frustrating. Of course, if we if we knew a date, um, we could plan towards it. If it was, you know, if someone said it was this date in February, we could work towards it. But as it is, we'll just have to stay prepared and stay ready. And for Darwinport to have zero cattle exported out in January. That means also no ships have been going to Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia and the likes. That's all a bit quiet too. Look, there's demand in those markets. As you know, I said earlier, it's, it's, it's very wet. So, um, you know, certainly, certainly Darwin, there's not, you know, big numbers of big, of big cattle. So, you know, the Vietnamese, they've got Tet coming, which is their peak demand period in February. So, they're sort of looking for, well, big cattle in January and, you know, they're not really available in decent numbers from Darwin. Townsville's wet and a lot of Australia's wet. So, it, it, you know, from that from that perspective, again, uh, you know, the timing's as good as it could be, but but, but very frustrating. And it's, it's probably, it's, it's worth noting that, you know, it's not just Australian cattle. There's, um, you know, meat and cattle and horticulture and other products from countries from Australia and from other countries. So I know there was a meeting um, yesterday with the US Embassy Ag Councillors, the New Zealand Ag Councillors and the Australian Ag Councillors up here to discuss permit issues for various products. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's um, you know, from, from that perspective, it doesn't seem to be anything aimed at Australian cattle, which is which is obviously the main message that yeah, I'd right. sort of like, like, like to get back to, you know, Australian producers. We don't see this as a, you know, Australia having done something wrong or Australian being on the outer. It's just sort of Indonesia being being Indonesia at times. And, right, uh, there could be some fruit farmers. There could be some fruit farmers having a having a similar. Oh, story there's at vegetable the growers. Yeah. There's vegetable growers. I know we were talking to, you know, the guys from the embassy and there's vegetable growers. Particularly some some southern Australia have. Uh, I'm not, you know, aware of the finer details, but basically have you know seasonal seasonal fruit and vegetables who are. Um, you know, have a small window to export them, and and, and uh, you know can't to Indonesia. So, yeah, there's a few of us in the in, in the same boat, so to speak. Well, all the best in Jakarta, and thanks so much for your time and, and keeping us up to date. Appreciate it. No worries, Matt. All the best, everyone. Thank you. That is Patrick Underwood, who's the managing director of Australian Cattle Enterprises, and we really appreciate his insight this afternoon. He's in Jakarta, and as you're hearing, Indonesia has not issued. Import permits for 2024, it is a nervous wait for the northern cattle game. And as I mentioned earlier, Darwin Port has not exported any cattle so far in 2024. And according to ABS data, I find this stat amazing. According to ABS data, the last time Darwin Port had no live exports for an entire month was 34 years ago in March of 1990. We'll keep a close eye on this story, don't you worry about that. Still on the topic of live exports, a live export vessel which has been anchored off the coast of Perth for the last few days has now berthed at Fremantle Port with some of the animals on board expected to be offloaded in the coming hours. So the MV Bahizar, it was ordered to return to Australia by the Federal Department of Ag because of security concerns in the Red Sea. 
More than 15,000 animals, mostly sheep, are on board. And this ship, as you know, it's been sort of languishing off the coast of Perth. And a plan on what to do with the boat, what to do with the animals, it's been debated for days now. It remains unclear just how many animals will be removed, but those left on board are expected to be re-exported. I assume, producer Dan, the long way under Africa? Mm. An interesting story, constantly moving. Stay up to date via the ABC Rural website. Leadership changes are deeply traumatising. The coalition years. Friendships are broken, people tell each other lies. And a story of ambition, betrayal and revenge. They just decided to wreck the whole joint. They destroyed each other's governments. In a landmark documentary series, the politicians who were there tell what really happened. Could not make it up. Nemesis. Politics is personal. (laughs) Continues Monday night on ABC TV and streaming on ABC iView. It is 17 to 1 and you are tuned into the Country Hour. Some breaking news this afternoon. Former Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, Michael Gunner, has just announced that he will be leaving his role at Andrew Forrest Company, Fortescue. He's written on his Facebook page, and I'll just read it out and share it with you now. He says, some big personal news. I have made the decision to leave Fortescue, working for Andrew And Fortescue was an incredible opportunity, a dynamic company with a bold green energy vision. I will always be a friend of the Fortescue family and an advocate for Fortescue and the path they are forging. After taking on the Australian director role in August, it meant more travel away from Darwin and the family, which I found too difficult, he says. I'm taking a bit of time before deciding with the family what I do next and am now reporting for lunchbox duty. This is Michael Gunner, the former Chief Minister of the Northern Territory. That's what he has written on Facebook today. It is 16 to 1. This week on the Country Hour, we've been talking a lot about Timber Creek and hearing some incredible stories from people still in town. They are surrounded by floodwaters. The Victoria Highway is cut and is expected to be cut for several more days because of flooding in that Victoria River. And we've heard from people on the ground there that the town is running out of food and running out of essentials. There's parents who have run out of nappies for the kids. They've been in Timber Creek, surrounded by flooding for 17 days now. And there are people in town who claim that the NT government has forgotten them and has offered no assistance. Well, up next on the Country Hour... We will be speaking to the local member, Labor's Duran Young. He will be joining us on the Country Hour. As I mentioned earlier, if you have a question that you'd like to put to him, send it through on our text line right now, 0487 991057. I've already got a few questions here that have come in from Timber Creek. So we'll have this tuned by Troy Cassadaly and then have a chat to Duran Young to learn more about what's going on in Timber Creek and what's been done to help the residents. He's one of our favourites here on the Country Hour. That's Troy Casadaly. things I carry around. Now, a week ago, on the 25th of January, the Territory's Chief Minister, Eva Lawler, held a press conference to talk about the work her government was doing to get food to all Territorians affected by flooding. 
Um, one of the most important things for us is to be make sure that Territorians have food supplies. So Yarralon has had yesterday two plane loads of uh, freight that's gone out there, about a tonne each time that that's gone out. Yarralon um, has had that stock going there, but then also we've had helicopters uh, taking food supplies then to Buller Camp. So Buller's a small community out from Timber Creek. Usually Buller get their food from Timber Creek and they haven't been able to do that. Uh, there's a, a plane that's just come back, a jet stream fly, uh, plane that's just come back from Yarralon. It's going to be loaded again in the, right now and um, that will head out again out to Yarralon to provide stock there. So um, there are packs, care packs that will go to families out at Yarralon, but there will also be um, supplies for the store. So it's been important really to make sure that across the territory, across the top end, uh, with all this rain event, that we make, um, we make sure all Territorians are able to access um, food supplies. Yeah, so that was the Chief Minister last week talking about all of the wonderful work being done to get food drops and other supplies to the communities of Yarralon and Buller. Important work. But as the Chief said, across the Territory, we make sure all Territorians are able to access food supplies. Unless you live in Timber Creek, it would seem. On Tuesday, the Country Hour spoke to Rainy Holcomb in Timber Creek. That town... It's isolated by floodwaters, has been so now for 17 days. And she told us that food supplies and other essential needs were so low in town that residents had started taking matters into their own hands. We haven't had any supply drops or anything for us here in the township itself. No food or or anything's been dropped off sort of um, to us. So Potter uh, hitched a ride in a helicopter over to Avern and borrowed a car yesterday to um, go into Kununurra and get a few supplies just to get get the town soaked through. We just went up and down our street a couple of days ago and just said, look, we're actually going to go into Kununurra. What essentials do you need? And and it's it's mainly just like bread, milk, formula, nappies, yeah. and a little bit of fresh fruit and veg for people. Um, but, yeah, there's been no drop-offs. We've heard that there's been drop-offs, that nobody's seen anything that has been dropped off. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, the... The people sort of um, of, of the township itself, uh, yeah, we haven't received any supplies whatsoever. So that's Rainy Holcomb speaking to us on Tuesday. And she's told me this morning that it's now day 17 of the flooding, day 17 of Timber Creek being isolated, and still no supplies have been dropped off. And she wants to know why. This afternoon, we're joined by Duran Young, who is the Labor member for Daly. So Timber Creek is in his electorate. I really appreciate your time this afternoon, Duran. Timber Creek, no food. What's going wrong? Uh, thanks, Matt, and thanks for having me uh, to get on to your show. Um, yeah, look, it's it's frustrating to hear those concerns um, from the residents of um, Timber Creek and just how they're feeling. Um, so, yeah, I, I do want to apologise to them as well um, that they're feeling that way. Look, we had signed um, an emergency declaration on the 18th of Jan, which um, ultimately gives the uh, establishes a welfare group, which is set up by the police, territory families and Dipple that are on the ground in Timber Creek uh, working uh, with the families and the community. Um, so they're, they're keeping an eye on, you know, the, the stock of food um, that's in the store. Um, I'm not sure um, if your listeners are aware, but Timber Creek only has one store and it's 
pretty much it's it's out of the pub and it's just for a basic essential services there most people you know have to travel to Catherine or Katanara um, but yeah a lot of advice I was getting back that um, there there was um, essential goods there and staple foods um, for people um, but yeah obviously um, some of the residents um, needed to take matters into their own hands. Mm. Do you feel now, I'm sure you've spoken to people in Timber Creek, have you? It would seem that advice was incorrect. Yeah, look, I have. I've spoken to Rain directly as soon as I saw that post um, put up. I, I tracked down her number and gave her, gave her a call. And I've spoken to, I think I spoke to her a couple of times yesterday. Um, so just kind of giving an update of where things are at. Um, I've spoken to Chris, who's the owner of the Timber Creek Hotel, um, you know, it was frustrating that the, the truck that we had going out to supply the town with food, it couldn't get through because the roads were cut off. So it was stuck for a couple of days. And then when it did get into Timber Creek, um, it, it sounded like the, the fruit and veg had gone off. So it was, again, just um, some very basic staple foods. Um, but I've been reassured that there is... Um, there, there is enough essential food um, at the store at the moment for the next couple of days. And, and is that is because the couple... residents went and got it themselves? Uh, no, this is from the latest drop with the truck went out there um, yesterday. Okay. So, so, um, food, but, the, so the NT government has organised for a truck and that truck has arrived? Um, when I spoke to no, that that's through the store. I spoke to Chris about that and he said there was a truck there um, yesterday. So... Um, we've got people monitoring that um, and making sure there is enough supplies. We've been told, uh, as far as I've been told, there's another truck coming out on Saturday um, to stock up all the shelves. But from um, the welfare group are, are keeping an eye on the stock and I've been told that there's enough um, essential goods at the store at the moment. A question here from someone in Timber Creek. question is, why does Queensland have recovery assistance available within 24 hours of an emergency natural disaster? And we're currently day 17, still don't even have food. Yeah, well, the, the advice I've been given that we have um, had, um, you know, staple foods there, but obviously, you know, that's it's people need more than just staple foods uh, to get on, especially when it's 17 days. Um, they've been locked in. So, you know, that's something I'll be um, having to work through with the ministers and maybe looking at, you know, how we, we restructure our way we, um, you know, respond to these um, crises. Another question here, will there be financial assistance for those in the township of Timber Creek? Um, look, yeah, there'll be teams going out assessing if there's been any damage. Um, I understand the welfare group uh, through Territory Families is going to meet with um, Rain and her partner as well um, and look at, you know, potentially um, how they may be able to be reimbursed for the helicopter hire and the fuel for that. Um, obviously, you know, they've gone out and done the right thing by the community and ensuring that um, people have been... Um, you know, got food on the table. So, yeah, I've asked that um, Territory families go and speak with them directly. So for you, what's been learnt in all of this? And I remember a text the country hour got, I think, on Monday where someone was like, I can't believe the government's flying dog food to some remote communities and there's helicopters and planes literally going over the top of Timber Creek and people there on the ground running out of supplies. 
Um, yeah, look, it's it's something that we're all going to have to have a, a look at. Um, but yeah, as as I've been told, there there was you know staple foods at the shop, but that's something we'll we'll have to go back and look at. So no lessons. Um, oh, look, I think in any um, emergency response, there's always lessons and we'll always go back and review and how, you know, how we can deliver services better. Um, you know, things uh, I acknowledge, you, you never run, things aren't always perfect and you should always be reviewing the way um, you, you deliver on the ground. And another question from our audience, who was giving the government the information out of Timber Creek? Um, well, look, we have a welfare group team, as I, I said, and that was the information we were getting back. Um, so we, we were going off that, and that's the information I was going back off. I was uh, spoken to a few residents. I spoken to Chris at the Timber Creek Hotel as well. Um, so then I was able to relay those some of those messages back to the um, the minister's office. And I've just been made aware of uh, an update from Rainy Holcomb there in Timber Creek. Her yep. Her message this afternoon is that floodwaters have receded off the highway in both directions and permits can now be obtained for residents only to travel between Catherine and Timber Creek. Yes, so people yeah, need to apply through um, Dipple. I understand that um, some of the, I think there's about 17 or 18 guests staying at the Timber Creek Hotel, um, so they've applied for those um, permits to get to Catherine. Um, so, yeah, that, that's a matter for um, Dipple to sign off on. Okay. Hopefully someone can sort that out real quick. I'd imagine there's quite a few people in town who wouldn't mind getting to Catherine. Yeah, I could imagine. So, yeah. 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 Okay. Hey, Duran, really appreciate your time on the Country Hour. Thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for having me, Matt. That is Duran Young. So he's the Labor member for Daly Timber Creek in his electorate. To all of those sending through questions, we appreciate it. I hope you got the answers you were seeking. Hello, my name's Al from Humpty Doo Sunflowers, and you're listening to The Country Hour. <laughs> Matt Brown with you this afternoon. It's the 1st of February, which means... It's the official start of the commercial barramundi season in the Northern Territory. How is the season shaping up? You will find out soon. And I promise, and I promised yesterday, you will, in this second half, be hearing from a Darwin-based resources company which has announced plans to become the only commercial fluorite miner in Australia. This is all coming up. Stick around. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Billy Lynch is there this afternoon. And Billy, for the first time in a long time, there really aren't many rainfall figures to talk about. Very little. No. <laughs> it's quite surprising, actually, the, the rainfall list at the moment. So top of our list is 12 millimetres at East Arm. Yep. Let's head to the Queensland border, ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee which has delivered big rain for outback Queensland. Where is it? What's it doing? Well, it's moved northwards in the last 24 hours and it's um, just got out over the southeast gulf of Carpentaria. So it's just off the coast south of Mornington Island at the moment. And Mornington Island radars, yeah, good look. You can see it spiralling around there. Mm -hmm. So It's doing its impersonation of a cyclone. 
Yeah, most definitely. Um, yeah, so coastal waters, um, certainly the southeast um, Gulf. There's a, a gale wind warning out for uh, for just yeah the winds picking up around that low. Um, Mornington Island's been gusting 80 kilometres per hour this morning, so pretty windy. And yeah, also a lot of thunderstorm activity across the, the Gulf at the moment too. So mm. I guess just yeah, not a good couple of days to be out on the water there if you you don't have to be. Mm. Um, but yeah, in terms of all the heavy rainfall around it, uh, well, I guess we've seen, we've definitely seen some cloud and rain across the far east and Barkley and up into the... Yeah. I bet if there was more official rain gauges along that border, there might be some decent numbers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what we've got on the Queensland side, um, where there's a place, uh, Lower Lawn Hill Creek, so that's 160 mils, and wow. there's been a few others close to 100 across the, the northwest yep. of Queensland there. Any chance this system could reform in the Gulf? As in tropical cyclone, do you mean? Yep. No, no, we're not too concerned about that, uh, fortunately, because it's got a limited time over water. So it's going to be lurking sort of where it is um, for the rest of today and tomorrow. Uh, and then we're expecting it to drift southwards again. So, um, I mean, if, if anyone is listening and they're in northwest Queensland, there's a severe weather warning for heavy rain and damaging wind, so it's not great conditions mm. um, out that way. Um, from our perspective, it's still the same risks, so there is still the potential for it to um, produce some, some heavier falls along that Queensland border region, um, so yep. that flood watch remains current for, for the same catchments right along that Queensland border. Uh, and I guess there is a slight risk that that severe weather warning might get pushed over our side over the next day or two as well. So we're really just tracking exactly where, which direction it's going to go. But, but overall, it's going to be slow moving for a couple of days, and then later tomorrow, it's going to drift um, southwards again over where it's already been raining. Okay. Suddenly dry in the top end, extremely hot in central parts of the territory. When's the next? Big change expected? Well, in terms of a cool change, going to have to wait until next week. Um, so, yeah, remaining, yeah, really hot temperatures, you know, close to or above 40 degrees through there mm. tomorrow and into the weekend. We've got a trough that's going to push into the, those southern districts sort of late Monday into Tuesday. So, the cool change at this stage, expecting to be on Tuesday where temperatures will drop 5 or 10 degrees but pretty hot until then yeah yeah I see Alice Springs on Monday expecting a top of 42 by Wednesday a top of 32 yeah um, so there's some relief coming but it, it's yeah not anytime soon yeah and as for the top end when's the next monsoonal burst due yeah good question so MJO at this stage Probably at the earliest it's going to come through would be late February, early March. Okay. So I think we're we're clear until then. Um, yeah, would be the most likely prediction at this stage. Beauty. All right. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Appreciate it. No worries. Thanks, Matt. That is Billy Lynch there at the Weather Bureau, just repeating a flood watch in place still for parts of the Carpentaria Coast and eastern inland of the Northern Territory. 
The flood warning for the Daly River has been downgraded to a minor flood warning and there is still that heatwave warning in place for the Carpentaria, Barclay and Tanami districts. Across the Territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. It's the 1st of February, which means it's the official start of the commercial barramundi season. Cameron Berryman is the chair of the NT's Barramundi Licensee Committee. Cam, how is the season shaping up? Yeah, I mean, plenty of rain, which which is always a good sign, um, although the, we would have liked the rain a little bit earlier, but uh, it's there. So, I mean, weather-wise, the boats are going to struggle to get out um, for the first week. But, uh, look, we, we've got a boat leaving today, um, and I think some of the other operators are planning to leave uh, towards the end of the week or early next week. And whereabouts will crews be targeting first, roughly? Oh, look, I mean, there'll be people down towards the Daly River region. Um, obviously, a lot of rain down that way, so um, we'll expect some good fishing down that way. Um, some other, other crews will probably head back to the other uh, locations, Roper River, down that sort of way, and, and, yeah, see what's producing over there. And for later in the year, it would seem the Gulf will be getting a, a lot of runoff going into it if... Um this tropical low stays around outback Queensland and the Gulf. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's good signs, and I mean, this rain just means good fishing for the next four years. You know, the recruitment won't happen this year, but um, the rain we get this year will affect our catches in three, four years' time. Now, last year, commercial barra fishers were stopped from fishing at Mini Mini, Merganella, and Buckingham Bay because of concerns raised by traditional owners. Are you allowed back in yet? No, we're not allowed within the intertidal waters of those regions. So, um, you know, we, we acknowledge uh, and respect the traditional owners' decisions and, uh, you know, we're, we're hoping uh, the Section 19 process uh, plays a part throughout this season and, and we'll see what happens as the season goes on. So you would be hoping to get into those areas at some stage in 2024? <laughs> Uh, look, I mean, the consultation process, my understanding, is a, a, a drawn-out process, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. It's, it's uh, The NLC can't get out to these places with the rains and roads shut off at the moment, so we'll wait and see what happens over consultation periods. We understand they're focusing on certain zones first, and, and yeah, we'll, we'll wait to hear from them. Can you give our audience a sense on how important those areas have been to your sector in recent years? Uh, yeah, look, uh, many, many Merganella uh, would have uh, equated to probably 15% of the catch um, of the Barramundi fishery um, in those years. Uh, Buckingham Bay, maybe not so much. It's a lot smaller area, um, but it, it was quite significant for us. And so if all goes to plan in 2024, what sort of tonnage? Might your industry get in a in a year? Oh, look, look I mean, I, I would hope to see about 350 to 400 tonne uh, come through. But, you know, it's uh, the new harvest strategies in place, which uh, make sure we manage the fishery to a high biomass. So fisheries will be uh, monitoring the fishery um, at an intense level. And, uh, you know, as long as the, that high biomass remains, um, you know, we've got a healthy fishery. And what are prices like for you? Yeah, the market's softened a bit, Matt. It's, um, you know, we, we don't really know until the first lot 
um, of catch arrives. We've got a few customers starting to to knock on the door and and see what's available. But uh, yeah, the season we would think would soften slightly. Okay, and for those who are just hanging out for some fresh wild caught barramundi, when would you expect the first boats to come back? Yeah, I think mid-February, Matt, would be the first lot of fresh fish on the market. So um, we encourage uh, your listeners to get to one of your local fishmongers and and ask them if there's any available and and get them to uh, reach out to the fish shows and make sure they've got it on the shelf. Okay, tight lines, Cam Berryman. And thanks for your time on the Country Hour. Thanks very much, Matt. Cheers. Cheers, Cam Berryman. He's the chair of the NT's Barramundi Licensee Committee. It's the 1st of Feb. It's the official start of the commercial Barramundi season. Here at the Country Hour, we have contacted the Northern Land Council about the closures to some Indigenous tidal waters, and we've been told by the NLC that it's preparing a response. So when we get that response, we'll share it with you. My name's Ashley from Bam Bam Springs Station. I'm Jacqueline Dakin from Anthony Lagoon. I'm Georgie from Catherine. You're listening to the Country Hour. We've got some news about Santos. And you'll get to hear from that company looking to mine Fluorite before 1.30. But before all of that, let's just jump across that Queensland border and into northwest Queensland where, as you know, Stations around there have been getting some huge rain this week because of ex-tropical cyclone Kiralee. North Australian pastoral company, NAPCO, it operates Alexandria Station on the Barclay, but it's also got Kainuna Station to the southeast of Mount Isa. The chief executive of NAPCO, Alan Cooney, says Kainuna was hit pretty hard by flood waters, but he doesn't expect many cattle losses. Yeah, so there's a, there's a very substantial fall of rain uh, in the Diamantina catchment, which is, sits just sort of southwest of Kainuna, and I- the geography of that area is pretty hard, hilly country and flats and all that sort of thing. So the water sort of comes down pretty quickly out of there. So we had a really substantial flood come you know, down from the headwaters. There was a lot more rain up there than there was at Kainuna, that's sort of given us a pretty substantial flood, and it's actually the biggest flood that's ever been recorded at, at Kainuna. I think the station was moved away from the river some decades ago to, you know, to, to mitigate the sort of flooding, but they didn't move it far enough because it's sort of gone through all the buildings and flooded the whole compound, the whole station compound and all that sort of thing there. Right up to the ceilings, is that right? No, not right up to the ceilings. The deepest water I saw in photos was in the kitchen and it's it's you know it's lapped the the bottom shelf where you put the big pots and pans um, that's about as deep as it got in any of the buildings your people of course are safe they've been airlifted out they were airlifted out a couple of days ago uh, as the water started to rise we got a chopper in there and they um, uh, flew them out um, and they they've been staying nearby with friends, uh, not in Kainuna because it got flooded as well, but close by. Uh, and we've been we've been there every day, like you know, the manager's been back and forth every day. We've got a chopper operating at the area at the moment. That is the Chief Executive of NAPCO, Alan Cooney, speaking there to Ali Felton-Taylor. It's 18 past one and you are tuned into the Country Hour. Santos has confirmed 
it will not pursue legal costs against Tiwi Island traditional owners who lost a federal court challenge to the approval of the Barossa gas pipeline. I'm joined in the studio this afternoon by Dan Fitzgerald, who's got the details. And yes, Kevin Gallagher, the boss of Santos, he confirmed all of this in Darwin this morning. Uh, Yes, Kevin Gallagher is in Darwin today and where he was asked about the court costs of the challenge to that Barossa pipeline and its approvals. The costs of Santos's lawyers, they were expected to have run somewhere into the millions and the court had ordered that the plaintiffs, the Tiwi traditional owners, were liable for those costs should Santos wish to pursue them for it. But Kevin Gallagher did confirm today that the company would not chase that compensation. Mm-hmm. And Tiwi traditional owners, they were represented by the Environmental Defender's Office in that case and they were subsequently quite heavily criticised by the judge. We talked, we about, talked about this yesterday. The They're under yesterday. a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, yes. that's led to some calls to by some politicians to defund the taxpayer dollars that go to the Environmental Defender's Office. Kevin Gallagher, he was asked about this. Um, he said he wouldn't weigh in on calls to defund the EDO, uh, but he did confirm that all of this delay had cost the project a significant amount of money. I'll leave that to other people uh, 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 to consider and to think about. Our focus is very much on, on pushing forward on a project, building those partnerships, creating the jobs and, uh, and, and uh, delivering this project successfully. Well, the cost was very significant, uh, as you were aware. We've not actually said what the specific costs of those delays were. That, that might come out in time, but, but you, you would have seen from announcement last week that we've upped the guidance on the project. Uh, by between 200 and 300 million US dollars. So that's a big hit to the cost of the Barossa project there. The court action has come to an end and Kevin Gallagher expressed some some, uh, pleasing that that had happened, but he said he expected uh, that the Barossa project would be continued to be targeted by activists. Oh, look, I mean, I I think uh, activism certainly not over, right? I mean, and and, uh, I suspect... Uh, that is the way of the world uh, uh, going forward. Um, I think uh, whether it's in Australia or elsewhere, governments need to, to try to find that right balance between allowing you know, a reasonable uh, voice to oppose challenge and, 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 and to be consulted um, with holding up projects after they're approved. Um, but, you know, again, I'll, I'll go back to the point that I think we have very, very tough and very fair and very uh, rigorous uh, uh, regulatory processes here in Australia and if, if projects meet those regulatory requirements and they meet those community expectations um, then that can only be a good thing for the longer term. Kevin Gallagher, Santos's chief executive and part of the reason he is in Darwin today is to spruik a fund that the company says will invest into Aboriginal communities once the Barossa project starts producing gas in a few years time. Uh, look, it's a really exciting day for us today because we're announcing uh, not only uh, progress on our project and you can see the great facilities and the partnership we, hear, we have here with CAFER, but also announcing the Barossa Aboriginal Future Fund um, that, that uh, will, will kick in from First Gas and our com- commitment to, to invest $10 million between now and the start-up of the project in Indigenous community projects uh, in, in the top end. Uh, over the next 18 months or so. Uh, It's a very exciting project. It's very focused, uh, or should I say initiative, very focused on investments in those communities uh, to help close the gap. That's investments focused in areas like education, 
infrastructure, um, jobs, creating real jobs, um, and, and, and as I say, helping us to close that gap. And uh, it's right that that benefits fund should be there to serve those communities over the next 15 to 20 years across the life of that project. Kevin Gallagher, he's the chief executive of Santos, and he said that that fund that will come out of the Barossa gas project, it could contribute up to $100 million over the lifetime of that project. Okay, thank you for keeping us up to date, Dan. As we go to air this afternoon, shares in Santos are down by 1.27%. I wonder if Santos has ever thought about mining fluorite. Up next on the Country Hour, you'll hear from a company based in the Territory that's looking to do exactly that. Hi, my name's Sam Furman. I'm an apprentice at Helimuster NT. I maintain all the aerial mustering helicopters up here in the north, and you're listening to the Country Hour. Yeah, so a Darwin-based resources company has announced plans to become the only commercial fluorite miner in Australia. Tyvan, it has advised its shareholders of plans to mine fluorite just one and a half kilometres away from its vanadium project near Kununurra in the Kimberley. Now, fluorite, what is it? Well, it's used in steel, aluminium and chemical manufacturing and is also needed in emerging sectors, including lithium-ion batteries and solar cells. Taiwan's chief executive, Grant Wilson, says the decision to push for a fluorite mine was helped by the federal government recently listing fluorite as a critical mineral. Our fluorite is a critical mineral in Australia as of December last year, and we've been in a deep uh, period of diligence at the company to assess the resource and a lot of previous work that was done on the resource over many decades, but particularly the previous owners did a study in 2018. So there's a lot of technical work that we've got through over the past month, and we're pleased to be in a position to confirm that we're pushing ahead with the project. Was it always on your plan to to produce fluoride? Well, fair to say we acquired the Spiwa resource in February of last year, so it's it's under a year. We had a lot of work to get through at Taiwan last year, um, transforming the company and building out downstream relationships in vanadium, which was our core focus. Also progressing the mineral processing technology uh, with CSIRO um, and many international negotiations as well in places like Japan. So we knew about it. We'd done um, superficial work on it through mid-year. But I think it's fair to say that the catalyzing event was the inclusion of fluorine in mid-December by the Australian government on the critical minerals list. What's been the the change there? Have we only just recognised that we need this product in these EV batteries? Yeah, there's a few features there. There was a change in government, obviously, in Australia, and the Labor government committed um, to go through a a long process with industry. Um, Some parts of industry are disappointed that that other minerals didn't make that list, um, specifically nickel, for example. And then behind the scenes, there would have been a lot of pull from offshore, particularly from the US. Um, And it's notable that fluorine is already on the critical mineral lists in Europe, in Japan and in the US. So there's probably a normalisation aspect there. Um, But I think probably in Australia, it was more the case that this industry had never taken shape before. So it was more an omission. And then I think a recognition that it's actually got this vital role to play. So at the moment, what does the market for fluorite look like? Just thinking that at the moment, the lithium lithium 
market is in the doldrums as well as the nickel market, as you touched on earlier. Of course, nickel not on that critical mineral list. But what's it doing for fluorite? Yeah, so it's quite idiosyncratic. Um, a lot of the minerals you just mentioned have reached cycle lows and you've seen that epic volatility in lithium prices, rare earth prices, vanadium even. And a lot of that's um, China's coming to the market and then just the broad cycle with global interest rates. And what we've seen in fluoride is just totally different. Um, there is a strong supply demand imbalance, which is forecast to emerge, particularly from about 2025 in the acid grade uh, flu spar market, which is the, the material that's going into these next generation EV batteries. And China, unlike rare earths, for example, um, is deficient in reserves. If they continue to consume flu spar at the rate that they are, they will run out in about 10 years which is remarkable. And so it's that susceptibility, um, which I think is driving the power along with these new use cases. So over the past five years, um, the since the scoping study was done by the previous owners, prices are up significantly and we made uh, historical highs. Um, so it, we're actually at all-time highs and the outlook is, is very, very positive. When's production going to start for you at Tyvan? Yes, that's a question I'll get a lot. <laughs> so we are still full steam ahead on our vanadium project. It's incredible that these two resources exist independently and from the edge of one to the other is, is 1.5 kilometres. I mean, Spiro is an incredible endowment for the country. So we're expecting to um, still deliver our pre-feasibility study for the vanadium project, which is a much more complicated and larger project in the third quarter. Um, this project, because we're building on a lot of work that's already been done and because it is a much simpler and smaller project, um, we're looking to deliver the PFS ahead of that now, um, the end of Q2. Uh, now, we at that point, um, having delivered both PFSs ahead of our AGM, the board will make an assessment as to which goes first. We certainly can't do both at the same time. Now, of course, we also have to work through all of the facilitation, um, as we have been, on the environmental improvements around SPIWA, and we're working very closely with traditional owners and we also have a public um, agreement now with Kimberley Land Council. So that portfolio with First Nations is, of course, uh, foremost important over the next couple of years. That is the Chief Executive of Taiwan Limited, Grant Wilson, speaking to Alice Marshall. And you can learn more about this Fluorite project if you head along to our website. Just type NT Country Hour and there it is. As we go to air this afternoon, shares in Taiwan are down by 3.64%. A moment ago, we were talking to Cam Berryman about the official start of the NT's commercial Barramundi season. It is February 1, so the season has begun. And in terms of tonnage, he told us he was hopeful of the fishery getting 350 to 400 tonnes. I've got a text here from uh, Dave Turavalo at Afant who says NT Commercial Barra Fishery targeting 350 to 400 tonnes of barra out of the Roper and Daly catchments this year. What on earth is going on, says Dave. With targets like that and the netting now squeezed into popular fishing areas, the reputation of the NT's world-class recreational barra fishery is under some serious threat, says Dave Chiravalo this afternoon. We might try and get him on the program tomorrow, hey? Uh, big show. Hope you enjoyed it. Keep it rural. Keep it rural.